What's up, everyone? This is Wes Lyon from McGill and Lyon Dental Advisors. Welcome to the Drilling It Down podcast. More dentists than ever are searching for solid, independent, objective financial advice. On this show, I sit down with my guests to help you see clearly through the fall, providing education as it relates to practice management, tax planning, investing, practice transitions, really any financial topic you can name that's going to help you reach your goals. Welcome back to another episode of Drilling It Down. Liam, welcome again. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back in a special edition. It's Wes's birthday episode, a year wiser oh, this year. It, it, so. One year wiser, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Happy birthday, Wes, and thanks for having me. Uh, I'll let my wife know. I'm getting even smarter and see if she agrees. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We'll bring back on next edition. No, we got a lot of great things to go over here this month. For those of you who don't know Liam, he's wealth advisor here at Lion Wealth Advisors. So we're not really here to talk about wealth today, but we are going to go over some retirement plan stuff. So while it's not necessarily investment related, it definitely sits in your expertise. So thank you for joining. Of course. I'm very excited to be on another great edition of the McGill Advisory, and we'll make sure we cover that at the end. But the first thing we want to talk on is Another ERC article. It seems like that has been a common theme, but we just seem to have updates each time. So what's new this time, Wes? Absolutely. First thing would be, if you're confused at all and you're watching, for those of you listening, there is an episode on the podcast. I believe it's audio only. Maybe we did video record it. I'm not so. certain. But either way, there is an episode where we go over all the details on this, everything you need to know. Make sure you go watch, listen to it, whatever it is. I, I know it's detailed, but if you think that you might have made a mistake, let's get ahead of it. So the first thing, for simplicity's sake, if you fall into the category of I think I'm in between, go listen to one of these episodes. Don't sit here. Today's episode is not going to be an ERC one, but if you got twenty thousand ish dollars, you know you're probably in the ballpark of what we would expect legally. If you got two hundred thousand dollars, you really need to talk to somebody. There's a high probability you weren't entitled to that. And the real question becomes, you know, if you got all this money and you weren't really entitled to it and you used a promoter, should you take the IRS's settlement offer or not? There is an article that was originally released online sometime in January when this came out. It was part of the February up article, though, or newsletter. So go in, read the article, listen to the podcast, make sure that you know exactly what you're doing here. And if you were swindled by a promoter and you got a very large employee retention tax credit, you know, we've been warned about this, but chances are if, if you think you're not going to stand up to an audit, it's time to take the settlement offer. <laughs> That's a good idea. It sounds like a nice little Christmas gift that the, the IRS allowed. Is there a deadline on the settlement? Or? Yeah, this deadline's going to be, oh man, off the top of my head, is it March? March 22nd. 22nd, I believe. So let's try not to push it up against the deadline. March 22nd might be the real one, but you should be shooting for a March 15th deadline of making sure you've got your settlement in if you need to have it. And there's different settlement options, too. So, you know, if you've received the money, you know, you have to go through the voluntary disclosure program. If you haven't received the money, but you've submitted it, you can withdraw the claim. Different things here. Highly recommend. Go back, listen, watch it, listen to this episode. 
it's like 45 minutes, so we don't want to bore everybody on more ERC (laughs) for those of you who've listened to it. But you need to get on there. Make sure you're listening. Always staying up to date. Most of you, though, probably in good shape. Hopefully, you've been reading the newsletter, listening to us, didn't take an egregious employee retention tax credit. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We won't say we told you so, but you heard it here first. So the next piece, and when we're flipping through, I... Notice the the DSO market when we look at practice values. It feels like DSOs have really been prevalent, of course, in the last couple of years. But the practice values, we're starting to see some changes there. So could you catch us up to speed about what Jonathan and Wade wrote about here? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually another episode out, not to refer back to one, but if you're only watching this, there's an audio version on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, where me and Jonathan Martin actually sat down and went over this in Mm. a lot more detail. But you know, give it short story is interest rates went up. A lot of these private equity firms, they borrow on floating rate debt, meaning, you know, you go to buy a practice and typically as an individual, the bank gives you a seven, a 10, a 15. I think some of them are even doing 20 year loans, but they give you this loan. It's a fixed interest rate throughout the life of the loan to buy a practice. That's not how private equity is typically going to borrow their money. Private equity is going to be on a floating rate debt a lot of times. And people don't realize that the private equity returns, a lot of them come from leverage. Mm. And that leverage, you know, they find the financing, put it on a floating rate. And, you know, that that's a big impact when the rate goes from, you know, they could get it at four or five, maybe six, seven. Some of these groups are borrowing at 12 to 14% now. So if you really look at what margins left, you know, let's say you're buying dental practices and after you pay the doctor, they've got 15 to 20%, you know, annualized returns. But you're paying a 15% interest rate for acquiring it, it's not leaving a lot of wiggle room in there. And I was actually at dinner with a very high up private equity person who they asked me about this. We we were in a social (laughs) dinner, but they asked me what's going on. And I kind of had my side of the story, but his side of the story was even more fascinating. His side of the story was the increased salary expenses, mm-hmm. the increased cost to running a dental practice, how much they're paying the hygienist are really killing a lot of the private equity firms. And what that's done is we've even seen clients that have showed us, you know, projections where the private equity firms are admitting to being cash flow negative when they service their debt. So naturally, what does that mean for your practice values? Well, As far as private equity goes, they're probably not going to be as great as they once were. Values haven't been dramatically impacted, but they have come down a little bit. The thing that we've really seen is there aren't insane offers out there anymore. You know, there are some people coming to us with offers and they look at us and say, Wes, I really don't like this private equity thing. I look back and say, hey, me too. But you see the number on the page? (laughs) (laughs) Can't say no to that. We're going to take that number. It's just too big to let go. And I I don't know that we're going to continue to see some of those. I think those groups that were offering way too much for practices where you're just looking at the doctor going, look, I can't figure out why they're offering this. But hey, if they're giving you 80% of that in cash now, you need to take it. I think those days are going to be over. So what we have, though, higher interest rates, these private equity funds, they turn over about every five, seven years. So private equity funds have a finite end, unlike a mutual fund that, you know, let's say invest in the S&P 500. Sure. That fund is going to shut down and return the money to the investors. And a lot of them are reaching that point where they need to return the money to the investors. And interest rates are up. There's a lot less free money. 
what we basically have is a lot more groups looking to use this term recapitalization, or they like to say recap. Sorry, I should have started there. They like to say recap. We're going to recap and we get your money out. That's short for recapitalization. And what they're doing when they're recapping is one private equity fund might be leaving and another might be entering. And the idea where you're going to make more money is that the value of your shares have gone up at that point and you'll be able to sell some of them. Well, we've got a ton of groups that are going to need to recapitalize, and we've got less people looking to actually help recapitalize, which means we're not going to see as much deal flow. Mm. There's not going to be as much money there. Not every group is going to actually get funding. So they're going to be more selective about the practices they buy. Not everyone's going to be able to sell to private equity moving forward. And, you know, the the groups, they're just overall can be more selective. They're looking for a certain practice. You know, they might not buy in the country. They might not buy in places where they can't readily replace the doctor. So that's going to go into it. They're also not giving as much in cash up front. They're doing something called preferred equity these days. <laughs> and <laughs> Sounds great, right? Preferred equity is just a loan. <laughs> You're right. like, hey, we'll give you 6% on this preferred equity, and then we'll pay it to you in two years. Well, write the terms of that down without the word preferred equity and tell me what it is, and it's a loan. So a lot of people, instead of getting 80% in cash, they're getting 60%, 70% in cash, and then they'll get some called preferred equity. And all preferred equity is is a loan. So that's happening a lot. And the other thing is they're really trying to push more into the younger market. They want doctors that are going to be around. They have... Hopefully, I don't know if they've quite figured this out, but hopefully they figured out not every doctor is the same. So some of the cracks are starting to show. So overall, these are all fairly negative things I went over. I do want to make it clear, though. Me and Jonathan, we always laugh about this. We felt like we were the bad guys out there telling everybody the truth of the private equity and that, hey, it's not everything it's caked up to be. And now we're kind of here to tell you from the other side hey, yes, all this stuff is going on, but there are still really good groups out there. There are groups that didn't make mistakes buying. There are groups that can get capital funding. There are groups purchasing practices. If you've got a practice that is in the realm of should go to a DSO, you've got a really large practice, super profitable, and you thought you wanted to do this, the gig's not over. You know, you're just going to have to be more careful about who you work with. And I won't even say more careful. We've been saying this from day one. Steps to do it. Figure out, hey, can I afford to do it? That's first and foremost. If you can't afford to do it, off the table. If this isn't going to get you everything you need to retire, you're not going to do it. You know, second step, let, let's calculate this amount. Let's gather some data. Let's see what we think this number is going to be. And based off what that number is going to be, let's decide if you think it's right for you or not. Third thing is, you know, okay, you saw this number. Is this enough money to work for somebody else? Sure, right. <laughs> Some people might say, look, I got no problem. I love working for the DSO. Some people are going to go, you know, that's not significantly more I could get elsewhere. Why do I want to work with them? Yeah. It just isn't making sense. So a lot of the time, it's going to just stop there. It's not going to make sense for everybody. But then you, you really do need to decide if you want to work for them or not. And then after you do all that, test the market. And when you test the market, work with reputable groups. You know, the groups out there that are marketing the hardest, doing all this stuff, they're not your friends. They're trying to buy your practice as low as possible. It it really pays to work with somebody experienced. 
the multiples are usually like six to seven ish. Some big practices can get to eight, but those are the multiples that we're looking and the groups will play games with it. So, you know, the groups, they tell us they buy on average at three or four. That doesn't mean your buddy down the street who says they got six. Oh, well, my buddy got a good deal. No, they know the true EBITDA in the background. They might have put together something that showed a six or seven X multiple. But when you really dive in and figure out those details, it might have been a three multiple. They might have construed the number or the PowerPoint to make it look more appealing than it was. Remember, these, you know, there's not a ton of regulation around what they're showing you. They can show you it's going to be worth whatever. And as long as they don't blatantly lie to you, they might just mislead you. They might say, hey, the total value of the steel over 10 years is X and make you sift that stuff out. But they're on average buying at three or four. So it just pays to work with somebody who's really going to look out for your best interest. And not only that, but you know, I always laugh. Jonathan and Wade have probably shut down more of these deals than anybody. <laughs> and people just call up here and like, hey, I, I got this offer. Like, We got one client. He called up here. He got a $3 million offer. And Jonathan looked at it and goes, well, we could get you $6 million tomorrow, no questions asked. He said, great, let's do it. And Jonathan said, yeah, I can't let you do it, though. He's well, like, what? He's go. like, buddy, you're 40-something years old, and you don't want to retire anytime soon. What are we doing this for? Your practice is only worth that because of the cash flow it generates. You're giving up all that cash flow to work for them for the rest of your life and only make a couple hundred thousand a year when you could make over a million a year. And you know, you just need to be careful, but... That's been the same five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago as it is today. It's just now that the market's shifting, more and more people are hearing the stories of, hey, you know, I don't like working for them, or hey, my rollover equity is not worth mm. what I thought it would be. And these are not terms or these are not things that were unpredictable. Right. These things, you know, I always laugh. I'm like, look, we're not geniuses here, but you looked at some of that stuff and you just laughed at it. People, oh, you know, a good way to rephrase that rollover equity would be, hey, you're going to roll over $300,000 of equity, and they're claiming it's going to be worth $10 million in five years. You know, I've seen stuff like that, and it's, you know, asked the question a different way. Hey, if I called you up and I said, hey, Dr. So-and-so, I've got a great investment for you. I'm going to turn $300,000 into $10 million in just five or 10 years. Do you want to hear more? What's your gut instinct, Liam, if somebody does that? Sign the bottom line. I'm in. Absolutely. (laughs) No, in all seriousness, you know it's not going to happen. Everybody knows it's not going to happen. And I think everybody was caught up. And be frank, it it was just how much money everybody was making off of it, except for the dentist going, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this. And the real motivation wasn't it was great for dentistry. It was really the motivation was I want to make commissions. So, yeah, it. It's changed a little bit. People are going to be more selective. The only negative that really changes is for the people already in it, if you got into it, you're hearing this and you're going, yeah, my my equity might not be worth as much as it was once projected to be. And that's going to remain very, very true throughout this. Now, I hope it's worth you know millions of dollars for everybody. I want our clients to do well. I want everybody that sold to do well. But Reality is there's going to be a lot of disappointed people. So there's a great article in there, and there's a whole podcast episode on it. We may want to make sure you 
take out there. But Liam, next two topics I really wanted to cover and have you on here. So yeah, today's episode is brought to you by the McGill Advisor. The McGill Advisor is your resource to reaching your financial goals faster with greater confidence and less stress. Members will receive our monthly newsletter delivered to their door, containing all the latest and greatest tips as it relates to taxes, practice management, and achieving financial independence. Membership also includes access to our online portal, including archived articles, webinars with available CE credits, discounts on educational seminars, and much more. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your first year subscription. I don't know if you watch the news a lot, but I think Congress is trying to they're trying to get something done. It's, it's called a bipartisan deal. Have you ever heard of one of those? You know, when I saw this, I had to just do a double take because bipartisan for both ends of the aisle to hold hands and truly get something done. I don't think we've seen that in probably close to a decade. So pretty cool to see it finally in the advisory. We're actually rushing and we have a, a real purpose, a bipartisan and tax. For those of you out there, no, we're not talking about the Ukraine funding. <laughs> right, right. It's very Apparently clear. every congressman agrees that we should fund foreign countries. Yes. But when it comes to changing the tax code, we got a little more experts in there getting involved, arguing with each other and just not being able to get anything done. A lot on the line. And, and a lot of times when we see we're getting a little bit closer to what we call a, an election year. So there's a little bit more motivation to get some more positive headlines in the news. And it sounds like there might be a couple coming up for the tax. Is that true? Yeah, you know, it, it'll be funny to see if they get this through or not. But one of the big changes, you know, is the Trump Tax Cuts and Jobs Act mm. begins to expire. And by that, I mean, at the end of the 2025, a lot of the provisions will expire. Sure. But bonus depreciation has been going down. So everyone got bonus depreciation in Section 179 confused especially if you get your tax advice off social media. <laughs> no so, one does that here. Uh, I, I <laughs> right. hope not, but everyone says, hey, you can write this off 100% under bonus depreciation. And well, the, the tax code's a little more nuanced than that. So for most of your dental equipment, it gets written off 100% under Section 179. But some of you, in certain states, bonus depreciation is more favorable, meaning for federal income tax purposes, there's not really a whole lot of difference switching one from another. But for state income taxes, not every state treats bonus depreciation or Section 179 the same way the federal government does. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's preferable to do one or the other. But let's concentrate on the one everybody wants to know about. The real one is unless you're buying a pickup truck with a six-foot bed or longer, your ability to write off 100% of a vehicle purchase went away in 2023, and it's getting lower every single year until bonus depreciation goes down to zero. So what this bill would do, one of the big things, is we bring bonus depreciation back to 100% so we can go buy those big SUVs and write them all off. <laughs> sure, I love it. Absolutely. And I... So one line here that I thought was so interesting was that it was like, how is this going to be paid for? How is this tax savings going to happen? By cutting off claims of the ERC that we just talked about. So it sounds like they're finally kind of putting checks and balances in place. Yeah, it's funny. Only the government can claim, you know, they're already over budget by, you know, billions and billions of dollars on the ERC, but now they're going to claim they're saving money by cutting off claims. But the other thing that was in there, was they're going to potentially restore 100% deduction for the research and development tax credit. Mm. And this is another one. If the same guy who helped you with your R&D tax credit helps you with your ERC, you're in trouble. <laughs> if your ERC guy is now calling you about the R&D, you're in trouble. 
while some dentists can take the research and development tax credit, and I think we were some of the first to write about the applicability of it, a lot of these tax promoters have gone too far. Mm. And we've seen it get shut down because in order to get the credit, you used to be able to take the credit all in one year and deduct the expenses. But now you have to amortize the expenses over a five-year period, meaning if I got a tax credit based off of $100,000 of wages, I have to take 20000 a year for five years. And they want to undo that change, which you know, I think it's probably going to lead. They don't realize, I don't know who's lobbying for this, but what they probably don't realize is it's going to get a lot more people in trouble than it's really going to help. So, you know, that's thrown in there. And there's a couple other tax credits in there. But, you know, that's the big one that's going to come out for the dentist is really that 100% bonus depreciation and those big SUVs coming back. <laughs> Absolutely. Better go run to the car lot. And no, I'm, I'm right there with you. And for the listeners, research and development, what would some of our listeners do that might actually qualify for that? Yeah, if you're making your own in-house retainers, that would qualify. But the qualification list is pretty stringent. So some people might some promoters claim just because you're using a CEREC machine means you're doing it. But if you're using a CEREC, you're not really improving a process or experimenting. You're really just using it to print your, or, you know, I don't exactly know if print, manufacture your crown is probably the best way to say it. You know, you're not really doing it. But if you're creating your own in-house aligner brand and you're actually in there, some of, some of the doctors out there, you know, they really get into it. They really learn how to print it. They really learn how to move teeth differently, and they really do it. The problem with how you calculate it is you're only supposed to calculate it off the increased expenses related mm-hmm. to this research and development. So a lot of people, if we're running an ortho practice, they'll claim that all the wages count. Well, that's not true. Only the additional wages from running the lab so I actually did this for with a client. You know, we were meeting. And I said, "Hey, you know, you actually qualify for this R and D credit. You know, it's very rare I see somebody that really does it the correct way. You do, and you know, he he started chuckling, and I was like, oh, you've looked into it.'" And he goes, "I have. I can get about five thousand dollars, but the problem is, if I do it, I've got a red flag on my return for five thousand dollars. So I decided not to." And that's the real issue is even if you do qualify, calculating it, a little trickier than people think. But some people out there, if you do qualify, you should definitely take it. Just be weary. You know, if somebody's coming in there telling you you can get a $150,000 R&D credit and I'll only take 20% of it in order to calculate it for you, you need to tell them to pound sand. They ain't your friend. They're getting you into trouble. (laughs) Exactly. So some nice research and development info there and also the more on the the cars, the SUVs. Just make sure you need one. I had a client the other day. We were talking about this. Is it beneficial to to buy the car? And I'm, are you in the market for one? And they said, of course not. I don't know where I'd put it. So make sure you you need it. It's going to be useful. We don't just want to spend money to save the tax, but it is a nice benefit we're getting here. That's the worst CPA advice I've heard. I hear it a lot. Is <laughs> hey, you're going to have to spend a hundred thousand dollars before year end in order to cut this tax bill. Right. It's like, well. If I didn't spend a hundred, at least I'd keep sixty. But now I got zero. Hundred <laughs> percent in a car I'm not using, so I'm I'm right there with you. No, well, next thing we have here is you know we got the four biggest mistakes that hold back a retirement plan, Liam. So, you know, I think the first one we have here, and I'm actually going to go out of order, but sure. Talk to me about this safe harbor provision and why it matters. So a lot of the doctors you're seeing are in the wrong safe harbor. Yeah, so all these plans that we're seeing and we're analyzing have a safe harbor provision. 
But most of the time when we ask the doctor, why are you in the safe harbor? It's just whenever the plan was set up, this is what I had it as. And oftentimes it's really based on two things. It's based on a doctor's demographics of their staff and their goal. If they're looking to maximize the plan and most doctors like to save tax and accumulate wealth, they want to put the maximum amount this year can be over $75,000 for themselves between them and the practice. They want to make sure they minimize what they're needing to give to the staff. A lot of doctors we come in with this goal have that 4% matching contribution. It's great, but it's mostly cookie cutter that we see a lot of these plans in where if the staff puts in 5%, we're going to match four. The problem there is some of the staff may put five. You're matching the four in the safe harbor, but the profit sharing that's allowing a lot of these doctors to put in that 76000 they're not able to count that 4%. So if I want to put the, the 76000 I got to put money in for the staff and profit sharing. Exactly. And well, so that stinks, doesn't it? It, it stinks <laughs> a lot. And so, and, and so we want to make sure we maximize that doctor benefit. We definitely want to be generous, but we don't want to be too generous. So the 4% match is essentially being a little too generous. That three percent non-elective. Yeah. So if I if it. I'm hearing you right, basically, if I want to do my seventy-five thousand and I got to give every staff member five percent in profit sharing, that match doesn't count. So they end up getting nine percent. They're getting nine. A lot of times we underestimate how much they do put in. If they put in, we're giving them nine percent in full. So let's say I'm doing profit sharing and. If your demographics are great, it's five. If they're not great, or if they're even just good, it could be six or seven. So I could end up giving 11% of compensation to every staff member. Exactly. And that hurts. And then when we look at that capture rate, that definitely says we're not bringing home as much of the capture of the total plan. So, so. if I move to the 3%, I save 1%? Yes. Yeah, so when we put in 3%, that's counting directly towards that final amount. So you said, hey, we need to put in 5%. 3% plus only now 2% oh, okay. of that full amount. So you can save the whole 4% sometimes. Uh, oftentimes. And so that is when we say, hey, we want to maximize it. It makes sense to do so with your demographics. No doubt about it. That non-elective will yeah, help. I think what you're referring to here is an age-weighted profit-sharing plan. Exactly. Uh, which kind of brings us to the first wrong thing, which is talk to me about the wrong plan design. What goes yeah. on there? Yeah, I think we mentioned here cheaper is not always better when we look at plan design. Oftentimes, we will see where if we have a an older doctor, they're not taking that age-weighted kind of class-allocated plan Oftentimes, we're just going with our payroll company, and they're finding the best cookie-cutter plan they have. But oftentimes, if we are significantly older than the staff, we want to make sure that we have that age classification in there. We're able to make sure we take advantage of that, and therefore, we don't have to give as much because of the present value that is a lot less. And for younger doctors, we might want to look into the Social Security integration as well, making sure that if we're younger and our staff is older than us, maybe that maximization of the plan doesn't quite make sense. We might want to make that Social Security integration a, a yeah, go-to. Yeah, and something else for the listeners out there, if you're doing Social Security integration, that match conversation's a little bit different. Yeah. But I think on the bottom line, you hit the nail on the head, which is some of these cheap platforms, they're cheap for a reason. There's nothing against them. You just need to know what you're getting. And if you're getting one of these cheap platforms, that, oh, we can do it for a thousand bucks. It's computer generated. Everybody's in the same thing. It's just the way the software works. Exactly. And I actually had a client once. We had this conversation and he's a great guy, so he didn't get too upset. But you know, he's like, why am I paying $3,000 a year to do this? And I was like, well, they're doing the testing and it's going to cost you a bunch more in staff costs. So 
he switched it against my advice, and a year later he called me up and said, uh, Wes, can you go apologize to your guy for me? Uh, <laughs> and he was laughing, fortunately, because you could have been more right. It just I have to give 11% to every staff member this year, and it just this mistake just cost me, you know, I forget what it was, but ten or 15000 in staff costs wow. because I was trying to avoid the $3,000 cost that professional to get it done. So, yeah, that that's a good one, though. And I think those two, I see often they come through and those two are messed up, which actually leads to the inability to run a cash balance plan or add a cash balance plan on top of it. Right. But it's really cool. I think when we add some of those cash balance plans on and, you know, we change the retirement plan, sometimes someone comes in, they're doing profit sharing. And the profit sharing, you know, okay, great, we're giving 12000 to the staff, and we're able to change the whole plan and run a cash balance plan, increase contributions by 150000 for the owner, and then somehow decrease staff cost. And it's all due to poor plan design. Exactly. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these plan designs, they can only be amended before the end of the year. And so even if we're not having a cash balance plan for this year, it's always best to get this done ahead of time so that in the future, you can start that enhanced plan as soon as you're ready. Well, yeah. And then I think if we're going into the next one here, the incorrect owner salaries, you know, that kind of leads in, which is, you know, did I get my plan design right? And I also think of what the salaries were going to be before I actually made that. So that's another one out there. If you are doing guesswork on your salaries, ah, that's that's not the proper tax planning we want to do. <laughs> but then this last one, Liam, you know, you're recently married as well. So, Absolutely. you know, you want to get your retirement plan in there. But who else do you want to maximize? Yeah, we want to make sure we are maximizing the spouse of the plan. It's certainly going to gonna help. Assuming that your spouse is not in another retirement plan, of course, you can still only put up to that aggregate amount in a 401k. But making sure that if you have a spouse, they are not in another plan, let's put them on the payroll and make sure they're getting their full salary deferral. That's certainly going to be a a nice help, and they might even be able to get some profit sharing. Oftentimes, though, what we might recommend is that they're just doing the salary deferral because they are considered highly compensated employee. It does help with the testing as well that we don't have to give as much to the staff if we maybe have a spouse in there as well. No, absolutely. Well, Liam, thanks for joining us. To wrap up, though, we got one important thing. There's an article we did not cover, and it has to do with the metrics you need to track monthly. Everybody needs to go read it, not only go read it, but if you want to see how you stack up to the industry averages or versus your peers, there's a QR code in there. Make sure you participate in our May analysis. If you do, you know, provide us your profitability data. We're going to provide you a report back. That way we can tell you or you'll be able to see, hey, I'm high here, I'm low here, where I stack up and, you know, figure out if there's something that needs to get changed in there. So make sure not only you read the article, but you participate in the survey. For those of you who are listening on Spotify and aren't subscribed, get subscribed, participate in it, make sure you get your data back. Otherwise, we will see everyone on the video cast next month. And we will see or hear those of you on the audio version uh, with more content uh, next week. So if you aren't subscribed to the audio platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcast, make sure you go ahead, get subscribed to Drilling It Down, and we'll see everyone again shortly. See you next time. This wraps up another episode of Drilling It Down. We look forward to seeing you for the next episode. In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, mcgilladvisory.com. And if you aren't a current subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your initial subscription.